Welcome to Break the Silence, Build the Future, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of survivors and advocates while shedding light on the pervasive issue of gender-based violence. Join us on a journey where survivors find strength in sharing their stories and experts offer profound insight into this critical societal issue. In the first episode of this podcast, what are the signs of gender-based violence whether it's happening to you, your loved one, or somebody you work with. I'm joined by Alamatu Dominikin, award-winning advocate of girls and women's rights, mentor, a friend, founder of One Girl at a Time. She's joining me all the way from London, UK. Thank you, Alamatu. Thank you, Fatuma, for having me. And I want to also say hello to the audience that will be listening to this and for um, colleagues around the world working so hard this time of the year to put things right and supporting victims and survivors of domestic abuse. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your support and your hard work for the last decades and the decades to come and your effort to advance rights and protection and safety of women and girls across the globe, in Africa, in Europe, and I'm grateful for your support. In the first episode today, Dominicine, I thought we would talk about what are the signs that whether it's happening to us individually or a loved one or somebody we work with, what are the signs that we notice? And also when we say, before we even explore the signs, when we say gender-based violence, what are we talking about? Thank you. Um, That's a good question. I mean, gender-based violence, as you said, it's an actual global situation affecting millions and millions of people around the world. And in my case, as you said earlier in the introduction, I'm an advocate for women and girls who have been victims or survivors of gender-based violence. And in my case, it it covers a wide range of area. The word itself, gender-based violence, encapsulates so many issues. But as you said, it's a, it's a terminology that we often use to describe abuse that's either targeted at an individual or a person, but there could also be a collective approach to it as well. And as you know, we talk about gender-based violence in the context in which it happens, and there are various incidents of gender-based violence. You could look at the sexual gender-based violence, emotional gender-based violence, physical gender-based violence. We also can even add in financial gender-based violence because now we're beginning to understand the depth of gender-based violence. In my case, I work mostly with women and girls. In many cases, though it affects sometimes an individual, but when you look at the impact, it affects a community, it affects a country, it affects a wider range of areas. Um, not just a personal. One of the definitions I like to use is that gender-based violence is very specific and it's very targeted at the individual in which this is happening. And also when it happens within the confines of misogyny or structural factors like patriarchy, um, social norms that have been designed to actually keep certain groups, in this case, women and girls, There are social structures that are put in place to sometimes not just minimize 
the rights of others, but also infringe on the rights of others. So we look at it from a, a human right perspective as well. And we look at it in terms of the um, disparities that it has around inequalities, because again, in some contexts, gender-based violence can actually affect those who are less within the structure dynamics of power and also within the dynamics of rights. For example, if I use in my community, I'm originally from Sierra Leone, West Africa. Sadly, we have patriarchal belief system that actually have infringed upon the rights in so many ways of women and girls, which by extension goes into things that harmful traditional practices. So in terms of definition, we could use as many as we want. But for us today, I want us to focus on the impact in terms of what gender-based violence does to communities that I work with, which is often women and girls. So like you said, if uh, we look at gender-based violence, the scope of it and the impact it has, different groups based on characteristics that usually push them outside what we would consider the normal social framework is, is really far and wide. And like you suggested, if we delineate and focus on not to dismiss the other groups that fit in that categories that, that are impacted, but if we delineate and focus on violence against women and girls. So we so I like that idea of and it's a gender based violence because the violence against them, whether it's individual person that's doing to an individual woman or yes. socially condoned structures that are intended to leash violence against women and girls. So that I like that idea of focusing our attention on that one particular aspect. Thank you for doing that for us. So uh, to move on from there, then, this particular woman that is experiencing violence, what are we looking at? Because for myself, when I hear violence against women and girls, I'm looking at the black eye. I'm looking at bruises over the body. But as you explained at the beginning, it runs deeper than that. How do we recognize that and, and how do we know where the roots are? Yes, thank you so much again. I mean, you've you've just touched on one of the main areas that I really wanted to cover, which is the depth of gender-based violence. It roots and causes and how we can, as a society, and even in my case as experts, work around these issues to really address the fundamental. Because again, in terms of gender-based violence, very specific, as I said earlier, and it's aimed at a gender. So in some communities, just being born a girl already, you are exposed to what we would deem as gender-based violence. You're sort of in a community that is conducive to the abuse, and um, in certain communities, for example, um, as we were talking earlier, gender-based violence is almost synonymous with what I would call the depth of a society. Because again, the way we treat women and girls in our society will tell us what the level of gender-based violence that exists within those communities. Mm -hmm. Now, in certain countries around the world, in certain communities around the world, the value we place on women and girls, whether it be through equal rights, whether it be through education, access to education, or reproductive health rights, for example, mm -hmm. 
will tell us the way the women are valued within their society. There are certain communities where it is okay for women to be bitten by their husbands or their spouse, for women not to say a word in sort of their community around decision-making. And every decision that's made within that family, it is more or less done within the male structure in terms of power. Uh, in terms of access to finance, for example, we know in certain communities, because just being the woman, you have no access to that. You cannot go to work. You have to solely depend on your spouse or your husband. And this is just how the, the societies within these um, structures have had a sort of design. So it's very difficult for women to see themselves moving further. When we're looking at gender-based violence, it's important for us to look at context by context, countries by countries. We have the universal declarations, we have the universal data that shows, for example, one in four women globally is likely to be a victim of gender-based violence once in their lifetime. We know, for example, in other communities, one out of 10 girls will be dropped out of school we know in certain communities, teenage pregnancy, again, could be higher. So when we look at those individual data, it shows how gender-based violence exists in those communities. So, And then we can break it down if we want to either see the examples. I like the last question you asked, how can we identify gender-based violence in our community? And I would like to use one example, because again, when we're looking at gender-based violence, there are many levels. We look at the physical, psychological, social, financial. I like to focus on domestic violence, because again, it gives us insight into what gender-based violence is. Thank you very much for that explanation. Like you said, gender-based violence or violence against women and girls is as varied and as different as the people it happens to. So it's sometimes almost challenging to define it and nail it down. When my daughter got into this relationship she was in, um, it was less than two months into it that the violence started. And then what followed was that she wasn't coming into um, family events the major family events that she would in her normal self would come into, whether that is um, a family member, a brother, a sister, or cousin graduating from college or from high school or from grade eight, whether it was like somebody getting engaged, somebody getting a job, somebody getting married, any of those events, she wouldn't come. But she wouldn't say, I can't come. All indications are she was coming. She had her plan. She took the day off or the afternoon off or whatever. But then all of a sudden, she wouldn't show up and she wouldn't take our calls. If we said, are you okay? Are you on your way? Should we wait for you before we start eating? Or she would disappear for the next two, three months and she wouldn't take anybody's calls. And then when she rejoined the family, we were caught in this difficult time that we don't really want to bring that she missed this event and that event and what happened because we don't want to lose that we have her here today. So it almost became when she comes, let's not mention anything. So we're not alienating her and she could come, allow her a way to save face. But gradually her not being able to take part in any family situation Mm -hmm. got worse and worse and that that was the isolation that when 
she resisted, the more she resisted the isolation, then the, then the physical violence started. What would you say to a family member, a loved one, a friend, a colleague that's watching this? What would you say to that? How would you go about? Because now looking back, I'm thinking maybe we should have done this or we should have done that. So it's like only yeah. if that we are. Yes. And, um, and I'm so sorry uh, about what happened to your daughter. And of course, her story is one that resonates really with me and many other people who have worked in this area for many, many years. Now, um, I mean, obviously, we don't know the ins and out of this case, but yeah. I wanted a particular situation that may have been present in um, your daughter's um, relationship. Now, in the UK, legislation was passed called the Coercive Control, because one of the things we've seen in gender-based violence and gender-based abuse, when we talk about domestic abuse, is coercive control behaviour. And in that case, what usually happens is, and I would like to use the terminology of the perpetrator, whoever does this to the other will be the perpetrator and then the victim. Um, this might not be the situation of your daughter, but it's similar to many that I have seen in the past. When it comes to coercive control behavior, it is a pattern of behaviors, not just one, but it's a series of behavior. It's usually very charming, at first, very loving, caring at first, yeah. to a point where the, uh, the victim may not even know that they are being groomed or being led down a path of where somebody is trying to control them as an individual. Mm -hmm. And these behaviors sometimes would deprive the, the victim of their independence or making decisions where almost they are gaslighted in thinking that whenever they make a decision, it will, it will be like the example you gave. You invite your daughter for a meal. Let's say, for example, they would have had a fight the night before and she probably has a bruise and he doesn't want family to see the bruise. Or what they will do is pick on something that would make it very difficult for the, the victim to actually leave. For example, if they know you can't drive and they've often driven the, the victim to, say, to the restaurant or to the family home, they would have said, yes, I will take you. And at the last minute saying, cannot take you anymore. You can go on your own. And obviously, clearly knowing that the person cannot make that trip with the holding finances that would enable the individual to get a taxi to visit their parents. So there are certain things the perpetrator would actually do. And often would be very sympathetic, apologetic. You know, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't really understand that you had to go to the restaurant to meet your mom or your sister. There would always be some excuses. And over time, the victim actually buys into some of these um, uh, reasons that the perpetrator will be given because coercive control is very systemic it's regularly done to the individual to a point where they don't even realize themselves that they are under this powerful force of control mm -hmm. which is why in the UK we really see coercive control as the factor that often might even lead to suicide or to even homicidal incidents because the way it's done, because coercive control has been one of those areas that we initially did not understand its impact and how far reaching it can be for the victim. It's about removing the victim from everything that they know or love or can use to help themselves. They might even control what they do, what they eat, what they wear, that is almost taking away the decision-making powers away from the victim. Mm 
Mm -hmm. It also would mean they spending more time with the perpetrator. So if they were going out on the weekends, most times to meet with their friends, that would reduce. They might monitor their phone calls. They might interrupt them. If let's say they're talking on the phone, there would always be some kind of interruption. Mm -hmm. And so again, it, it's systemic. It's over time. It's regular. It's nonstop. It's being done in a way where you then begin to police yourself. Even when the perpetrator is not there, the victim will always now think just as the perpetrator would think. It's so difficult for us as parents, advocates, until it's pointed out to the victim. Many times when women, particularly women that are in coercive control, very difficult for them to see themselves until it's been pointed out that this is not normal. Why mm -hmm. must you every day at four o'clock be standing or watching your phone? Because they're worried if I don't answer that call now, she will then be worried now. If I don't answer the call, when I get home, we may go into an argument, we would have a fight. The scenario begins to play at every opportunity to a point, even when it doesn't happen, the victim will think it's happening. Yes. Always become very suspicious of herself, becoming so conscious of her actions now. What we see is this repetitive putting down of the victim. Why do you want to go to that party? You don't even have dresses that would make you look nice when you go to that. Oh, why do you like hanging out with these people? Don't you know they don't like you? You're always with your mom. Don't you know your mom doesn't want the best for you? You're now a grown adult. Why must your mom make a decision for you when you could make those decisions? So these are some of the conversations. I'll give you an example. A lady once called to ask for my advice. She was married with one child. Baby had died just after they got married. So it went to this point where the husband was working, but every one o'clock he comes home, he would come home for like a nap and goes back to work. She wasn't working, but she was always at home for when he comes in and would make his tea or lunch. And over time, he will then would say, I'm, I'm coming at one and she'll be prepared and be ready. He wouldn't come. So other times he would come and then sometimes he won't come. Let's say he then turns up when she wasn't expecting him. And obviously she hasn't made tea because he's not regular anymore. It's sporadic. Mm -hmm. well, why haven't you made me tea? I want you to make tea. Whether I'm here or not here, you have to make my tea. So after time, she just constantly would make tea. He wouldn't be there. Friends that would visit would say, well, why are you still doing this if he's not here? It went on for a while to a point where she began to feel something was really wrong with her. And finally, when she sought help, which was what she was calling me for, was that actually you haven't done anything wrong. If he could let you know when he's home so you could make the tea. But mm -hmm. if he's not letting you know, this is not your fault. When the relationship ended, she felt really depressed. You mm -hmm. know, it has um, affected her in such a way. That is just one example of coercive control. Thank you so much. We reached at the end of the first episode of the podcast, Break the Silence, Build the Future. This episode titled Recognizing the Signs, Understanding Gender-Based Violence. I was joined by Alamatu Dominikin, an advocate for the rights of women and girls, award-winning keynote speaker, and all-around an awesome person and support. Thank you, Alamatu, for joining me. Thank you for joining us. Please remember 
to like, follow, subscribe, and share. And join us next week for another episode of the podcast, Break the Silence and Build the Future.